You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Warm nights are here, so I spend more time looking up at the night sky. The summer triangle, sporting the stars Dena, Vega, and Altair, that's my guidepost. These three stars don't seem to have any planets, but still, I kind of wonder what it would be like to visit a planet outside our solar system. When I first learned of the summer triangle in my youth, planets beyond the ones we learned about in grade school were a nice idea, but not more than that. No one was sure they existed. They might be there, but we couldn't see them. Today we know, we know, that there are roughly a trillion planets in the Milky Way galaxy, a trillion. And now we can even picture what sort of landscapes we might find on those worlds. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we give you the wide-angle view on science and technology. Pictures of planets in our own solar system are coming into sharper focus. Thanks to recent research, we now know that lakes may have dotted the ancient Martian landscape and that slow-moving icebergs glide across Pluto's frozen seas. In this episode, we take you to these worlds and even imagine distant exoplanets elsewhere in the galaxy. We also ask whether the eight planets of our solar system are typical in the cosmos or highly unusual. It's Imagining Planets. I'm about to leave for the Scaparelli crater where I'm going to commandeer the Ares 4 lander. Nobody explicitly gave me permission to do this, and they can't until I'm on board the Ares 4. So that means I'm going to be taking a craft over in international waters without permission, which by definition makes me a pirate. Mark Watney, space pirate. Okay. So, unlike Mark Watney in the film The Martian, maybe you haven't been to Mars. Or check that. I know you haven't been to Mars. But we now have a good idea of what it's like to visit the Red Planet, and that provides Hollywood a better opportunity to portray it more accurately. It's a harsh and unforgiving world with a whistling wind. Dozens of robotic missions to Mars, after all, it is the most visited planet in the solar system, have given us the lowdown on our little ruddy buddy. Mars is as cold as the Antarctic, has an atmosphere you can't breathe, and is as dry as a desert. In fact, it is a desert. Nevertheless, and despite its brutal environment, Mars may be the coziest planet for life in the solar system, excepting our own. 
This view of Mars is relatively new. Oh, we had a general idea of what the red planet was like even 250 years ago, around the time of the American Revolution. We knew the length of its day, the tilt of its spin axis, and that it had ice covering its north and south poles. Still, the gaps in our knowledge were enormous. Then, in the summer of 1964, we got our first close-up look at Mars when NASA's Mariner 4 spacecraft flew by the planet, sending 20 blurry black-and-white photos back to Earth. But even in 1964, many people still expected that Mars would show canals. That was an idea promoted by astronomer Percival Lowell at the end of the 19th century. But perhaps more reasonably, at least some small lakes or big forests or massive mountain ranges. Well, the Mariner mission ruled out the lush Mars and instead gave us a crater-strewn landscape. And as we've continued to return to the red planet, we've gathered more and more information, and our picture of this world has grown sharper. So much so that we can now look for places on Earth that resemble Mars as it is today and even give clues to what it was like four billion years ago when it was a wetter world. Natalie Cabral, a planetary scientist at the SETI Institute, has been going to these terrestrial Mars analog sites for decades, sites such as the icy volcanic lake Nkankabur, high in the Andes Mountains and the salty, arid Atacama Desert below. She's trying to learn more about contemporary conditions on Mars, as well as those in the deep past, when Mars might have been a more conducive place for life. Dr. Cabral describes her first dive into that icy volcanic lake 15 years ago. Nkankabur is really special. It's completely transparent. At the time when we did the diving, the water was Arctic blue and we had all the rays of the sun that were diffracted, so I could see every single ray of the sun as we were diving into that lake. And all of a sudden, we were surrounded by not only, you know, like shining diamonds because of, of the rays, but also little specks of red. And as we got closer, we realized uh, these were zooplankton and a little, you know, little shrimp, very, very small one, and they were all over the place. And it was just a symphony of color. Water was transparent. We were diving in diamonds and reds. And, and all of a sudden, I caught something on the corner of my eye, which, was, which looked unusual, was a, a patch of white. And it was very, very different from everything else. This patch of white was a biofilm that was deposited on, on, on the rock. And that was very, very different from everything else. And it was just like a beacon calling us. If someone were to listen to what you just described there, diving into a volcanic lake, seeing a biofilm, seeing zooplankton, being in water at all, and then you explained that this is an analog to Mars, and Mars is not a watery world, how is it possible that that dive told you anything about the red planet? So what it told us, what this dive, actually a couple of dives, we had a couple of dives uh, two days apart, um, Entering this lake was entering a time machine. So it's not Mars today that we were visiting by entering that lake. That was Mars four billion years ago. So we can assume that Mars had a lake like that four billion years ago? Th there are a uh, number of evidence in uh, morphological, mineralogical, that there was abundant water at the surface of Mars. And, and morphology is here to tell you that lakes were present. We have deltas, we have sediments, we have a number of things. So there were lakes on Mars. Whether those lakes were inhabited, that's a, a different question. 
but the complexity or simplicity of life uh, that you can imagine is probably, you know, the simplest life that we could find on Earth is probably what was in those lakes if there was anything. And was that your central question in going for that dive? What kind of life lives in a volcanic lake? The very first one, which was pretty naive when I think back 15 years, is the first question I had is, are we going to find anything in there? Because it seems so hostile. It's so high. It's bombarded by UV. Of course, there is a water column, but the water is transparent. So it's not so much of a shield for, for life. But the motivation to go there was first to answer that question, but also if we find anything, then what is the diversity of life? How the environment and life have co-evolved uh, there? But also, how are we going to detect that on Mars? What can we learn about the signatures of life in this type of environment that we can use to develop instruments and understand detection thresholds for the detection of biosignature on Mars? Can we come back to some of your travels? Yes, ma'am. You've been in the high altitude of the Andes Mountains down to the Atacama Desert below, and this is the driest desert on Earth. Um, and I understand the salt in, in the desert itself can burn your skin. There's so much salt in the air. And yet this is another analog to Mars. So how is it that you can have this wet world that is an analog to Mars and then the driest, most barren place on Earth, also an analog to Mars? It's the triple A of astrobiology, if you can put it that way. The Atacama, the Altiplano, and the Andes. And uh, why does that work? Because as you go from the Atacama to the Altiplano to the Andes, you are moving back in time on Mars. Because Mars was wetter in its earliest time and had lakes and had glaciers. And as you are moving closer in time towards us, towards the present, the atmosphere disappears. You are seeing a lot of evaporation. Then you have dry, dry lakes and you have evaporites and you have the formation of salt. And, and because you still are at altitude in the Andes, you have lots of UV, even though it's less in the Atacama than in the, at the summit of those volcanoes, you still have considerable UV over there. And this UV is interacting with the salt at the surface. And we are seeing the same geochemistry in the Atacama that we see on Mars today. And, and so what we do, we call this, it has a specific name. We call this a space four times substitution experiment, which means that by going higher in the Andes, as we go along this traverse, we are going back in time on Mars. So when you stand in the desert, in the Atacama Desert, do you imagine that you're standing on Mars? I mean, do you fantasize that you're standing on Mars? It's interesting that the first thing I thought when I was, was one morning, I was uh, getting out of my tent at the summit of Likankabor, which means that we had this view, plunging view, on the Altiplano below and all the lakes and the other volcanoes. And it's a very barren place. Um, there is not one tree, not, it's just, you know, lava, salt, and lakes. And I looked at that, and my first thought was not about Mars, but it was about early Earth. And in fact, this is the same thing, because early Earth and early Mars were fairly similar. But it took me back in time in my mind. It was a thought experiment at the time, and I said, we could have been sitting there 
four billion years ago. Well, it would have been very uncomfortable because we, ha we would have been bombarded by asteroids and comets and, and there was no ozone layer. Uh, so we would have been in a very bad shape very, very fast. But it's just a place that actually, you know, grab your mind and instantly takes you back in time. It could be Mars, but it could also have been the Earth four billion years ago. You have traveled to extreme environments for your work. And in a recent New York Times profile, you said it can be quite dangerous. It's dangerous whether or not you're going up to a mountaintop or down into a desert. But you were quoted as saying that explorers have to be prepared to make sacrifices, even the sacrifice of their own life. And I wonder if you meant exploration in general, or if there were times where you came close to losing your life in the course of your research. Both. Uh, this actually both. Uh, the first time I, I had this first revelation, I, I was actually very young. I was 23 years old, and, and I was coming out of the lab. And, and I should say you were coming out of the lab, you were in France. I was still in France. Yeah, so you have set foot in an urban environment at one time in your life. Okay, yeah. go, <laughs> so go on. Yeah. So, um, you know, my advisor, uh, PhD advisor, uh, had opened a safe and showed me actually a lunar sample from Apollo, and it was a dust sample. And I was very unimpressed. It was gray, it was dull, and I was disappointed. I didn't say it, I didn't show it, but inside me, I, I felt a little disappointed. I got out, it was time to go back home. And as I uh, stepped outside the lab, all of a sudden there was this beautiful full moon rising over uh, the Meudon Observatory and which was shining over Paris, you know, in the terrace below. And I looked at it, and all of a sudden it was this, then again, you know, this transfer back in time and thinking about the astronauts and what it took to get that little sample of dust and how much they risk for us to get this. And this is where it, you know, hit me that exploration has a cost and explorers are willing to pay the price. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing this, right? But why? I think that, you know, curiosity uh, uh, knowledge, and, and from time to time, well, they pay with their lives. And yes, I had a few close calls. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't think you can end it there. <laughs> can you give us an idea of what happened? Um, a couple of them, yeah. Um, I was, um, I told you I'm a free diver, which means that I dive without any other equipment than my two lungs. <laughs> And you take a big breath and you go down. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, we'll keep it simple like that. So, so I was free diving, and I obviously didn't quote unquote burp, didn't burp the suit well enough, which means removing all the air. And if you don't find the air bubble or the air pocket, it's going to find you. And I didn't realize that. So as I was diving, the air moved to my feet in in the suit. And I didn't realize it because, of course, when you're diving, you're diving at first. But when I wanted to come back up, I just couldn't. Oh, it was goodness. acting like a buoy. And the last thing you want to do is to get out of the surface at 20,000 feet without air in your lungs, uh, which is pretty much what happened because I basically couldn't go anywhere. I was stuck in the water column. And so I had to give it a very good kick to get out. And uh, so that was one. Um, and the other one, probably the most um, dramatic of all, was uh, the 2007 earthquake of Tokopila. This earthquake 
actually killed a few people on the coast, and it was a very serious one. It was a 7.8. So the wave from the earthquake moved very quickly uh, throughout the Andes and the Altiplano. But basically, we were 50 meters away from the summit when I saw our guide turning away from me and starting to show me to move away from the overhang we were. And so I took the radio and I had my chief logistics officer calling me from the base of the volcano and he was frantic. I turned around and I could see the entire altiplano, or in fact, I could not see anything anymore. Everything was covered in dust, avalanching everywhere, except where we were. And we were probably in one of the most dangerous places in the volcano, we're in the gully. So when I saw that, I first told him we were fine and I moved everybody and I say, we're going to wait for the aftershock because there is always an aftershock, as we know. <laughs> uh, so the neighboring volcano, the infamous Lascar, share a slope with the one we were and just a little lower. And I say, there is a lot of smoke. I think that Lascar is erupting. That got my attention. For like a fraction of a second, yeah, I had my blood in my heels. I mean, the human mind is incredible. It was more of a survival mode. What do I need to do next? And I said, okay, what do you see? They say, there is a lot of smoke. What color? White. Okay, we are fine. Water vapor. And uh, where is it going? It's going away from you. All right, we're fine. We wait. But he called me a couple of minutes later and he said, uh, there is avalanching on, on Lascar and a lot more smoke. Okay, and he said, also the wind has changed direction and it's coming towards you. Okay. What's the color? And he said, yellow. And then I use an expletive because this was uh, um, sulfur, sulfur coming uh, out of the volcano. And when you, when you mix that with the moisture of your lungs, then you have sulfuric acid and you're in a very bad place. And as he was saying this, I turned to look at the crater and I could see the yellow plume just starting to show up at the level of the crater. So I called everybody and asked them to come where I was. I wanted to be really careful because we had a 21-year-old with us and I didn't know how she was going to react. So uh, I am explaining what's happening, that the place is becoming a little too dangerous for, for us to stay and that we had to descend and fairly fast. And all of a sudden, the 21-year-old just jumped at my neck and started to hold me really tight. And she looks at me and say, this is so cool. <laughs> okay, we are fine. <laughs> so we, we descended very fast. We could see the plume passing way overhead, but it was engulfing the entire crater where we had been like half hour before. So we bailed out right in time. Well, Natalie Cabral, we're very glad you made it down off that volcano and safely into our studio where you could sit with us and talk about your work. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're very welcome. My pleasure. Natalie Cabral is a planetary scientist at the SETI Institute. Mars is better known to us than any planet except our own. Pluto, on the other hand, has traditionally been the least well-known. It wasn't even discovered until the 20th century. And then it appeared as no more than a tiny dot on a photograph. 
Coming up, the principal investigator of NASA's mission to Pluto reflects on the flight of the spacecraft, the terrifying failure moment, and the images that transform this far-off object from a modest little dot into a world of mountains, plateaus, and other bizarre features. We are imagining planets on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The planet Mars, strewn with rocks and mountains made of stone, might have been, or maybe still is, a home to life. But at the other end of the solar system, we have its highly idiosyncratic sibling, Pluto, a world where the rocks and mountains are made of ice. As recently as a few years ago, we knew it only as a dot with some dark smudges situated in the outer realms of our solar system. We actually simulated a view of the Earth at the same resolution, the same pixelization as our best Hubble image of Pluto. And you know, it's just a blue blob. You can't even see that there are continents and oceans. It's just one amorphous blue blob. And look how interesting the Earth is. But you'd never know it unless you actually went there. And so that's where the New Horizons mission went. Principal investigator Alan Stern says seeing its detailed images of Pluto was like pulling back a curtain on this distant world. We started to learn that uh, this was really quite a bizarre place, a double planet unlike any other in the solar system. Complicated surface composition, interesting atmosphere, uh, and surface markings that seemed to change with time. When astronomer Clyde Tombaugh discovered Pluto in 1930, it looked like a dim pinpoint of light in a photograph strewn with stars. But this pinpoint moved slowly across the sky from night to night. It was big news, a new planet. But questions about its geology, did it have craters, mountains, or even exposed rock, could not be answered by simply aiming bigger telescopes at Pluto. Trying to see surface features on this world from Earth would have been like trying to read the date on a dime from a thousand miles away. After all, Pluto is a hundred times farther away than Mars. We had to go there. So we used a souped-up rocket hurtling at 10 miles a second, faster than any we'd ever sent into space. But even so, it took a decade to make the trip. The New Horizons spacecraft launched in 2006, sailed by Pluto in 2015, and kept on going. It's now on its way to another world, a dwarf planet even smaller than Pluto. To call the New Horizons mission amazing is to understate both its daring and its technical accomplishments. Dr. Stern remembers a nail-biting moment shortly before the flyby, a failure just a few days before the spacecraft reached Pluto. He and David Grinspoon, a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute, relate this story and the rest of the historic effort to examine what was, at the time, the ninth planet of our solar system in their book, Chasing New Horizons, Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto. 
David, uh, what would you say to, for example, I don't know, a construction worker sitting next to you in a Denny's restaurant or somebody who says, what's in this for me? Why should I, you know, swing a hammer for an extra hour this year in order to earn the tax monies I'm going to have to pay so you guys can fling some hardware to a dot in the sky called Pluto? How would you answer that? Well, first I'd say, hey, look at these pictures, man. This is a place that, unlike any we've ever been, if you have like an ounce of curiosity in your body, which I know you do because you're a human being, how could you not want to know what's in this place completely unknown to us? And now it's known. There's something very human about wanting to explore and know new places. And I think it doesn't take an academic or a scientist to have that desire to know. But then if this guy with a lunch pail and the hard hat was still listening to me, then I would talk about the benefit of comparative planetology and how it's a good idea for us to learn how planets work because whether we like it or not, we're sort of running one now and we don't really know what we're doing. So knowledge of planets is a good thing for a civilization trying to deal with their role on a planet. I find that people are moved by that. It's not that hard to convince them. You start talking to them and nobody's going to say, I don't care about that. Or it's if they do, they're being contrarian and they don't really mean it. <laughs> and I, I have just the reverse experience. By the way, I think it was a lot more common... 40 or 50 years ago, when there was kind of a anti-technology backlash in the 1970s, that people questioned the value of space exploration. I have people make conversation in airports and on airplanes all the time. When they find that I work in this field, they're enthralled by it. And I have people that even recognize me in airports and on airplanes and say, hey, that Pluto mission, I watched that. You're the Pluto guy. But, but Alan, Pluto's 25 times farther from Earth than Mars is. And our rockets take more than a half year to get to Mars. So that sounds like Pluto is a long haul. You confronted that very early, I think. So what was the plan? How are you going to deal with that? Were you just going to, you know, suck it up and wait a long time for your rocket to get there? Well, what we did was we built a very small, lightweight spacecraft, tiny compared to Voyager. And uh, we bought the biggest launch vehicle anybody would sell us, and we tricked it out for maximum performance, and the combination was ferocious, the fastest spacecraft ever launched. When I was a kid, Apollo missions would launch at 25,000 miles an hour and three days later show up at the moon. New Horizons reached the orbit of the moon in nine hours flat, and we crossed the solar system at record speed, and uh, we even used Jupiter to get even more speed and a gravity assist. So in the end, we made the problem tractable. Instead of taking 25 times as long as it takes to get to Mars, it only took us about nine years. And once it got to Pluto, it didn't tarry, right? I mean, it didn't land. It didn't orbit. It just sailed right on by. It was sort of like, I don't know, taking a plane to New York and looking at it out the window as you flew over it and kept going. Well, you could say that, but, you know, that's the way that we've explored all the planets. From the first explorations of Venus and Mars, every planet in the solar system is first visited with a flyby spacecraft, which is the lowest cost way to do it. So we get the lay of the land, and then we can decide if it's worth to come back and study it in more detail with more expensive orbiters and landers. And there's something about a flyby that is really an extraordinary experience to participate in because it's the time when a planet really goes from just a dot that you know nothing about to a full-fledged world where you all of a sudden know a lot about it. Alan, I mean, how did it feel to do that? Because really it was a big gamble, right? I mean, you had researchers waiting for a decade to get the results of their experiment, 
And that requires a special kind of patience, I would imagine. Well, it does. Uh, uh, exploring the outer solar system, and in particular, the exploration of Pluto, was all about delayed gratification. We knew that. We signed up for that at the beginning. It's a long way away, even traveling very fast. It takes quite a while, almost a decade, to get out there. And that's after 14 years to find the funding and four years to build it and get it launched. So the whole enterprise, people really had to stick with it, and they did, all the way from uh, 1989, the year that the Berlin Wall fell and Voyager flew by Neptune, its last stop, until 2015 when we got the goods at Pluto. Something did go wrong at the last minute, by the way. Oh. There was a very dramatic moment where literally at Pluto's doorstep, the spacecraft went offline. And there was a brief, very scary time when they weren't sure if they were ever going to hear from it again. And then a mad scramble to fix it, because when they did hear from it, it was messed up. It had lost all the files to do the flyby. So there was a real last-minute cliffhanger moment where, you know, a nightmare scenario of everything going wrong, and the team kicked into action. And we should be clear, across the entire journey, three-plus billion miles, nine and a half years, nothing bad had ever happened. It only happened this once and at the worst possible time, three days before the flyby was to begin. So were the uh, people in your team pulling out what remained of their hair? Uh, (laughs) No, as a matter of fact, they went straight to work. It was on Saturday, July the 4th. We have a phone tree. We called up everybody on the project. They all came in in their flip-flops and whatever they were doing at barbecues and uh, buckled down. And in a matter of three days, they uh, put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And with only four hours left, by the way. The images are stunning. People have seen them. It's on the cover of your book, you know, one of the photos. Um, Alan, what was the biggest surprise from your point of view in terms of the appearance of Pluto? Well, I think for all of us on the science team, the combination of the uh, complexity of this little planet, it's just the size of a continent on Earth. And yet, here we had glaciers, ice volcanoes, avalanches, what looked like frozen lakes, vast canyons, We had areas that were old and areas that were brand new. And we just didn't expect that a small planet could be as complex as a place like Mars or the Earth. So we started taking to calling Pluto the new Mars. And it's really upended our ideas of how small planets can evolve and still be active billions of years after their formation. We would have never known that if we hadn't been to Pluto. You know, for the rest of history, those New Horizons images even eventually will go back to Pluto, I think, with orbiters and other missions. But the New Horizons images will will live forever as just this revelation of this extraordinary place. Alan, I don't think most people would imagine Pluto as a possible abode for life, but maybe it could sport biology, or is that not true? Well, I'm going to ask David to weigh in on this as well. But, you know, one of the things we learned with New Horizons is that there's pretty strong circumstantial evidence, uh, the kind of case you might see on a CSI episode that convinces you that Pluto very likely has a liquid water ocean under its surface. And that suggests that there could be habitable conditions in that ocean. David? Yeah, well, you know, uh, as far as we know, what life requires... Uh, And again, as far as we know, you could argue that's not very far since we've only got life on one planet. But astrobiologists have studied this question a lot, and we generally provisionally conclude you need liquid water, you need organic matter, and you need an energy source. And on Pluto now, we have pretty good circumstantial evidence that there is a subsurface ocean of liquid water. And clearly, there's a lot of organic matter in the Pluto system, as there seems to be all around, you know, the universe. It's common stuff. 
And clearly, and sort of surprisingly, there are energy sources because one of the big surprises of New Horizons, of, of Pluto, was how active the geology is. There's energy driving the geology that the scientists on the New Horizons team are still trying to figure out fully what's driving that. But there's some kind of energy source, and there's all the other requirements. So now, I never would have said this before the New Horizons results, but I think we have to add Pluto to the list of possible abodes for life in our solar system. Yeah, there's something like seven or eight of them, right? I mean, if we include the atmosphere of Venus which you have included, by the way. Yeah, but as Alan's often pointing out, you know, we used to think of oceans as being something that resided on the outside of planets. And now we know that there are a lot of oceans in our solar system, and Earth is the weird one with the ocean on the outside, and there are a lot, apparently, that have oceans on the inside. So maybe that's where all the fish are. And, and not to make a pun, but this is a sea change. <laughs> we, we really, really have come. And this is something that was completely unexpected at dawn of the space age. When you looked with telescopes across the solar system, you couldn't find any other ocean worlds. And so the prospect for biology was thought to be small. And then one by one, beginning with the satellites of Jupiter, we've started to find that these oceans inside of worlds are common. And that there are many abodes for life. You don't have to be in a habitable zone because planets make their own habitable zones deep in their interiors when there are these liquid water oceans. Even as far away as the Kuiper Belt, where Pluto is, 3 billion miles from the sun, where the surface is 40 degrees above absolute zero. That's minus 400 Fahrenheit. Nestled beneath the mantle is a liquid water ocean. That's amazing. And rock-water interactions on Earth generate interesting chemistry that can fuel life. So I I don't want to get too specific here because who the heck knows, but where there is energy and water and interesting chemistry, uh, who knows, something could evolve. Listen, if I drilled a hole two miles deep in my backyard, you know, down into the rock there, I'd pull up microbes, right? Yeah, but that's not fair because you live on a a planet that's been, where life has been evolving for a long, long time. It's had (laughs) had time to tunnel down, has it? (laughs) Yes. All right. So, New Horizons, not yet done exploring. Where to next? Alan, where's it going next? Ultima Thule. This is the nickname we've given to our next flyby target. It's a Norse phrase that means beyond the farthest frontiers, and it's aptly named because we're going a billion miles beyond Pluto to uh, flyby to reconnoiter this object. I'm on a first-name basis with it. I just call it Ultima. Uh, (laughs) On uh, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, this coming New Year's Eve and New Year's Day 2019, New Horizons will swoop down over this small building block of planets like Pluto at a range much closer than we flew by Pluto, taking much more detailed images and spectra and returning that data to Earth beginning the first week of the new year. And what do you expect to see? That's a good question. No one's been to anything like this before. And it's just a point of light in our telescopes and very faint because it's small and it's very far away. And we know much less about it than we knew about Pluto. And even Pluto, you could have probably put everything on one sheet of paper. I don't think I can write two sentences about this one. And it's a billion miles farther out than Pluto. So not even close. By far, it will be the most distant place we've ever explored and seen images of. Finally, gentlemen, uh, there are people who think that NASA has lost its mojo, that it's become ossified, sclerotic, incapable of doing anything very challenging, innovative, or daring. New Horizons doesn't seem to fit that mold. Any comments on NASA? No. I mean, the story of New Horizons is one of America really being on its game. 
and it's a nice reminder right now when a lot of people, you know, we have somewhat divisive moment in our country, shall we say, and maybe some people are doubting our role in the world in some ways. But NASA is on its game, and New Horizons shows what we can do when we uh, work together in teams and focus on a distant goal. And NASA's, you know, still going strong. We've got all kinds of great missions to look forward to in the future. We're going to Europa. We're going to new kinds of asteroids. We're proposing new missions back out to the Kuiper Belt and other places. So I don't see how anybody could look at the range of what NASA's doing now and say that we're uh, sclerotic. Yeah, and I, I have to say I'm, I'm of the same mind. I think that, uh, in fact, right now we're just entering a golden age not only for science at NASA and exploration, but for the abilities of humans to go exploring. NASA's currently developing three separate human spaceflight systems. At the same time, we have companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin that are developing human spaceflight systems. This is a golden age for both human and robotic spaceflight. Alan Stern, David Grinspoon, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us, yeah. Alan Stern is the principal investigator for NASA's New Horizons mission. David Grinspoon is a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute. Their book is Chasing New Horizons, Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto. Mars and Pluto might represent the front and backyards of the solar system, but how typical are they of planets in general? When astronomers tell us that they've discovered thousands of planets around other stars, extrasolar planets, and that there are a trillion more in our galaxy, well, it's tantalizing to try and picture what these myriad worlds look like. And we do just that. Coming up, a NASA space scientist describes worlds that seem plucked straight out of the most daring science fiction. It's Imagining Planets on Big Picture Science. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Thanks to astronomical detective work of the last two dozen years, we found that planets beyond the solar system are as plentiful as weeds. But unlike weeds, they have personalities. They're definitely not all the same. Although I think some of the weeds in my yard do have personalities. Any of them attractive? Only to other weeds. Well, before we had missions to look at these worlds in detail, we could only draw on our imagination. When pictured for us in movies and TV shows, these exoplanets, which are planets that orbit other stars, are frequently bizarre and quite dissimilar to the ones we know. In the movie Dune, giant worms wriggle out of the sand on a planet that looked like it was the Sahara Desert everywhere. Careful where you step. 
But that was fiction. What does science say? Thanks to work with large ground-based telescopes and the Kepler Space Base Telescope, well, we can't see giant worms, but we're learning that there could be many worlds that resemble Earth. But there are undoubtedly many, many more that are unfamiliar, that don't look like any of the worlds of our solar system. So far, we've only investigated a small number of these trillion exoplanets, somewhat more than 3,000. We've measured sizes, masses, and even something about their temperatures, and that gives us an idea about their appearance and their environments, says Jack Lissauer, a space scientist at NASA Ames Research Center. Jack, we've discovered more than 3,000 planets around other stars, exoplanets, but we haven't actually seen very many. Why, why is that? Planets are very faint, and they're near stars in the sky and the stars are much brighter. All right, but despite the fact that, uh, you know, we don't see them, we do notice their effects, such as... Well, we can measure their mass if they pull their stars, or if they're transiting, if their orbits are edge-on. We can see them periodically passing in front of their stars and blocking a small fraction of the star's light. Okay, so that tells us what? I mean, what, what, what numbers do we get out of a, an observation like that? If we see them transiting, the average temperature and also the size, and sometimes you can get, if you look at the pull they exert on their star through the radial velocity or Doppler method, you get their masses. So somebody asks me about my dog, <laughs> not, that, not that I actually have a dog, but, and, and, they, and I tell them, you know, uh, well, it weighs 31 pounds, it's two feet long, it has brown eyes, you know, sort of like the mass or the average temperature, or the, just whatever, of these planets, but that doesn't tell people very much about my dog. Can we really learn anything about these planets that's interesting from these limited numbers? Well, yes, we can, Seth, because from the mass and the radius, we can have a good idea of what they might be made of. We can tell whether they might be rocky or they're mostly gas. Now, it's not a perfect measurement. We can't, for instance, distinguish between something that's a combination of rock and light gases like hydrogen and helium and something that's made mostly of water because the average density can be the same. All right. But it gives you a clue. I, I have to point out, and you certainly know this, NASA, if you look online, they have these colorful artistic renderings of exoplanets orbiting their parent stars. For example, you can see that uh, Kepler-186f, a fairly famous exoplanet, uh, it, it looks like it might have you know, continents and oceans and maybe about the same size as Earth. I mean, we don't even know whether it has liquid water on its surface, right? We don't know if there are lakes or oceans or anything like that. But we allow the artist to show those things only because it isn't ruled out based on the data we have, or, or is that wrong? Well, it's not ruled out because that planet is in the right zone, the habitable zone, that if it had water, that could be liquid form. And it's not so big that it has to be substantially hydrogen-helium gas. And indeed, it's not so big that it would be that unlikely for it to be mostly rocky. So there is some science there. Absolutely. Well, okay. Kepler-186f has been sold in some quarters as an Earth-like planet. 
I think I know what that means, or at least I think I know what my neighbor thinks that means. But does it also mean we would have the same sort of topography and climates as we do here on Earth? Like, you know, snow-capped mountain ranges, deserts, vast oceans. Or is our planet maybe special? I mean, uh, the other planets of our own solar system, you know, some of them are more or less the same size, but uh, the topography doesn't quite look the same. You're right, Seth. Topography differs from planet to planet. Like Venus and Earth are almost the same size, almost the same mass, and not that different in their distances from our sun. But Venus, it's hot enough to melt lead. Extremely thick atmosphere. Now, we can't tell at that level for many exoplanets. We can tell some of them are just too close to have liquid water in a sunlit part of their skies. But we can't tell that a given planet right now with the data we have actually has liquid water. And we can't tell what kind of an atmosphere planets have unless they're big enough that they have to be hydrogen and helium dominated. There's another planet that Kepler found, Kepler-62f. It's a little bigger, so it's a little less chance that it's rocky. There's more chance that it has a very thick atmosphere that would make it extremely hot at the surface if it even has a surface, even though it's at a distance that it gets less starlight from its star than we get from the sun. But its star, it's a lot closer to the sun in its mass than Kepler-186f. So if I had to move to an exoplanet, and believe me, I wouldn't want to move to any of them because even if we found one that's habitable, my bet is that it doesn't have chocolate, so it wouldn't be very habitable. <laughs> uh, I would take my bets on Kepler-62f. Now, my second choice would be 186f. I see. Well, you know, a lot of the exoplanets we've been finding, actually, are what are called super-Earths. And when I think of a super-Earth, I think it's, you know, it's better than the Earth. But I don't know if super-Earths are really better. They're just, what, bigger. What would it be like on a super-Earth if I took, you know, photos on a super-Earth? You know, what would they look like? Any idea? Well, different people use the term super-Earth to mean different things. As you stated, a super-Earth is bigger than Earth. But the term is so great. I mean, it's a wonderful term. You think of it as better than an Earth, not bigger than an Earth, that people have used it for a lot of planets, which really are more like Neptune, but maybe a little bit smaller than Neptune or Uranus. So you could think maybe they're Earth-like, even though it's very unlikely they're really at all Earth-like. Would any of them be what are called water worlds, at least in the uh, you know the popular sense? I'm, I'm thinking here of Kevin Costner's movie Water World. I mean, was that a super Earth, or does anybody know? When we think of a water world, something that's covered by an ocean, that could be really a super Earth. It could be an Earth-like planet. If we had five, ten times as much water, we might very well be covered globally with a, an ocean. And when you talk about a water world in the science fiction sense, it has a thin ocean. It's mainly a rocky world. But there's another definition, and that's a planet with a substantial fraction of its mass and volume water. So more than 10%, say. And then there would be no rock. 
except very, very, very deep down. Well, finally, Jack, we've recently learned more about planets in our own solar system. Quite obviously, we've been sending spacecraft there. We have a more complete image of Mars to the point that we can identify analogs to its environment even here on Earth. And our detailed pictures of Pluto, well, they've certainly changed our notions about uh, about that planet, which when I was a kid was no more than a dot on a field of stars in the photos. In what way have new insights into the planets of our own solar system help us picture these other worlds, these exoplanets? The diversity of planets and also of moons in our solar system, because there are many moons that are bigger than our moon and a few that are actually bigger than the planet Mercury, have told us a lot about what can be out there. But they've also told us that we're not real good at predicting things and imagining diversity. Pluto, people talked about all sorts of surprises. Well, before we saw Pluto, we knew so much more than we do about any of these exoplanets. And when Voyager went by, got the first good views of the satellites of all four giant planets, we saw just how diverse these objects that were like Pluto, just points of light and telescopes from the ground, are when they're close up. We saw how different Mars and Venus are from our Earth and Mercury too. And with these exoplanets, we know that some of them are very unlike anything we have in our own solar system. We can be certain that we're going to find things that are different from the kinds of planets we know about. Jack Lissauer, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Well, pleasure, Seth. Jack Lissauer is a space scientist at NASA Ames Research Center. So what we're hearing in the show is that there are still surprises to be expected when it comes to the planets, that these extrasolar planets are not going to be variations on the themes that we're familiar with in our own solar system, and that the planets nearby, relatively close nearby, Mars and Pluto, for example, may give us a glimpse into the nature of some of the planets that are light years away. Having said that, we should still expect the unexpected. Well, it's much more exciting that way. Imagine if you had told an explorer of the 16th century, hey, here are the kinds of lands you can expect to find scattered across the Pacific. That would be both inaccurate and a little discouraging. It's finding new, unexpected things that appeals to scientists. And the other thing that emerges is that these data don't just plop down onto the scientist's desk. So in the case of the New Horizons mission, they built this spacecraft. It took decades to build it and have it get all the way to Pluto. And there was this exciting moment at the last minute where all might have been lost. It took a lot of mental stamina and technical prowess to see that mission to its end. And then you think of a researcher like Natalie Cabral, who needs mental stamina and also physical stamina to do the research that she does in some of the most extreme environments on Earth. Yeah. Well, which would you choose? To wait 10 years and hope that the spacecraft gets there so you can finish your PhD or dive into a nicey lake on the top of a mountain? I think I might want to sit in mission control with my cup of coffee and wait for the spacecraft to beam back the images. That's got to be a pretty big cup of coffee for 10 years. I don't know. Well, would you rather be chased down the mountain by a ball of yellow sulfur smoke? 
Well, I don't know. I've really never had that experience. So you'd have to actually have had that experience in order to make the comparison fairly, whether or not you'd like to almost die on the side of a volcano or have a cup of coffee and sit in mission control. Well, to be completely honest, I don't like coffee all that much. Well, the point is, is that to be an explorer means not to play it safe. Although it's safe to say that we have just begun to explore. I think that's safe to say. Thanks to the team members who help us imagine our plan, if not planets, each week and produce the show, senior producer Gary Niederhoff and operations manager Barbara Vance. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science that is called Imagine planets. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And you'll also find links there to our guests. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because, you know, your Wi-Fi connection could always crater, check out the listing on our website of the more than 140 radio stations that carry the program. And if your local radio station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. And if you never want to miss an episode of Big Picture Science, well, you can subscribe to Buy Pi Sci on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. To reach us directly with your comments, don't hesitate. Throw in some faint praise, however. Email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.